0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome to this edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining me again. Appreciate it. We're going to kick off the show with our friend, Scott the Cow Guy, Shalady, Fox Business regular for a a wide-ranging discussion on all things recovery-related as it pertains to COVID-19. And, uh, you know, the government-run recovery gives you a good indication of what the government-run economy would look like, how it would perform if the Democrat socialists had their way. So let's get right into it and uh, go through a number of issues under this uh, rubric COVID-19 recovery. Let's start with uh, all things markets and all things COVID-19 related because you can't talk about the American economy without talking about COVID policy. Starting with the uh, phase four COVID relief package that's still pending, the hang up in part over the level of enhanced unemployment benefits. Here was um, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi kicking it around with Judy Woodruff on PBS. So are you coming closer together on that all important unemployment Federal
0: unemployment benefits number. Democrats were asking for 600 a week to continue. Okay. Republicans were saying 200. Are you somewhere in between? We were told no, no, maybe but there's, you, no you're, no there's
4: no in between. There's no
0: in between. The fact is uh, that since we passed our bill, which was 11 weeks ago tomorrow, 3.3 3 million more people have gone onto the infected list of those infected. You now 70,000 more people have died. And the Republicans said they were going to push the pause button. And they did. And then last week they came up with some piecemeal thing. So the the, the we are not saying to the American people, more people are infected, more people are dying, more people are uninsured, more children are uh, hunger insecure, food insecure. And guess what? We're going to cut your benefit.
3: So, Scott, is that, um, is that compelling to you, Nancy Pelosi? Uh, we should extend these 600... 600- Dollar enhanced unemployment benefit level uh, for some uh, s- some amount of time. We did $1,200 and $600 before. Why should people who are struggling, as she was describing, see any cut in the benefit levels they've come to expect for the last three months?
2: Well, I, we're just we're, we're putting our great-grandchildren in, in more and more debt. My, my, the question is, is, is there ever a point where it's too much money for her to be giving away? Is there? Does she have a top end level about what would be ridiculous on her behalf? Because here's the pro, here's the problem. We're trying to fight a virus with cash, and it's it's a, it's an actual psychological issue. So all the money we're going to give to anybody right now is not going to really do what just opening up the economy would do. Start giving people some good news and good numbers, and get people back out there earning. That would be the best package stimulus package the government could could do. But you know, when you're a little kid and you walked into that shop and it says "you break it, you own it," well, when the government decided, and I wasn't happy about it, and I was very vocal, and I got some death threats for it, but that idea to hit that lock, hit that um, shut down button for with a 22 trillion trillion dollar economy, this is what you get. So once you break it, now you own it, and they're going to have to spend some money just because they you they've taken livelihoods away from people. Now that the question is then, how much is enough? I I, I don't. I'd rather have them open it up and not even have the discussion because right now we're talking, it's ridiculous the amount of money that we're going in debt over and it's not doing anything except prolonging the pain where these people are going to actually have to try to go back and find something to work at and we should just open up the economy and let them go back and do that earlier. They're going to make, they'll feel better about themselves anyway. And again, the government's in competition with local businesses as it is now because of that 600 bucks a week. So look, it's an absolute disaster because of the shutdown. And now we're trying to bail ourselves out of it by throwing money at the situation because we did break it. Now we own it. And the only way that you're going to get out of this faster is to open things up faster. That's it. Throwing money
3: at it and also uh, trying to intercede on behalf of some versus others. So just as it's lives versus lives, it's uh, livelihoods and incomes versus incomes. And uh, President Trump uh, talked yesterday at his COVID briefing about uh, evictions and the need to perhaps intervene to prevent evictions, to demand more forbearance, uh, impose more forbearance on landlords.
5: We may do some things. Uh, We want to take care of the eviction problem. People are being evicted very unfairly. It's not their fault. It's China's fault. It's not their fault. And people are being evicted and we can do that with an executive order. So if we don't get And we want to do it relatively quickly. I mean, even from the standpoint of COVID, uh, people get evicted and then they go into shelters and there are thousands of people in the shelters. And this is not a time you never want to be in a shelter, but this is not a time to be in a shelter with the COVID. Uh, They catch it, they get it, and it's no good. So I may have to do something on evictions, too, because the Democrats amazingly don't want to do it.
3: So uh, people are not paying their rent um, through no fault of their own. Right. Um, they're, so what about the landlords who are not getting rent through no fault of their own? Well, they turn
2: to their bank and say, sorry, can't pay the mortgage on these properties I've been renting out. And then the bank needs to turn to the government and go, okay, pony up. That's what needs to have happen. That little salon and that strip mall, whomever owns it should not pay their rent. And th- then whatever goes to the owner, he should not pay the mortgage. And then the banker needs to go to the government and say, pony up. You decided to shut this down. Nobody else did anything. And that's what makes me angry about the whole thing because that is such a catastrophic nuclear option to try to uh, maneuver uh, this coronavirus crisis because other countries, which we talked about earlier, have done a much better job of it and they didn't shut down.
3: But uh, but are you, you suggesting that this is what banks should do in this policy environment or are you suggesting that that's the right policy to – for the government to intervene on behalf of renters and then intervene effectively on behalf of landlords uh, waiting for the banks to uh, queue up for their share of the money that's been printed.
2: Yeah, I think – well, I think it's – that should be the policy. That should be how it should work and not starting with a small person and give them 600 bucks a week. The small person should not have to pay the rent for their their their, their business the owner should not have to pay the mortgage to the bank for the business and then obviously the bank then would turn to the government and say hey you broke it you own it now we got a problem what are we going to do about it because going to the minutia level i think is is much more more difficult than if you just did have that negative uh debit kind of flow upstream and then finally get to the government i think that's a better idea uh baltimore city council passed a law forbidding landlords from increasing rent
3: on their properties during the <laughs> during the duration of the state of emergency um uh, for three months after the state of, of emergency is lifted now there 's there 's a lawsuit pending on that uh something that 's not pending is the decline in rents in big cities uh San francisco year over year has seen an eleven percent decline uh in rental uh income the, the rent price for two bedroom new york down seven percent boston down six percent San jose down 9%, Oakland down 3.5%, D.C. down 3%, L.A. down 4%. Um, you see, uh, biggest gainers are sort of these uh, mid-size urban communities. Biggest gainers in rent uh, over the year, year over year: Cleveland, Indianapolis, Columbus, Ohio, St. Petersburg, Florida, Reno, Chattanooga, Cincinnati, Baltimore, St. Louis, Norfolk, Virginia, Lincoln, Nebraska, college town, Detroit, Michigan, and so forth. What do you. Uh, how do you describe what's happening there? I,
2: I, think that, I think that's going to continue. I think absolutely that will continue because of the density issue. With well, Look, bottom line, like I said earlier, when, when's the next time you are going to get 105,000 people in Ann Arbor to watch a football game? The, the American psyche is so bruised that people aren't going to want to be in big cities for a while. This is not 9-11 where we had a common enemy we could recover very quickly. This is the, uh, the news media every day. You know, there's a saying that you, know, you do something small 15 to 20 minutes every single day, whether it be meditating, writing, exercising, whatever. Uh, you know, the sum of all of those little 20-minute uh, exercises over, uh, say, a month can really come out to some great outcomes. Some pretty amazing things happen, right? But when you then turn that around and have it be 20 minutes of negative news every single day, what does that do to America? And so these people are now voting with their feet because now they're afraid. Think about it. If you're willing to move out of the city because you're afraid, what is that going to do to the trickle-down economy about going to a restaurant, going to a large gathering, going to a a, – what are these stadiums going to do? What are the bars around Wrigley Field going to do? This isn't happening overnight. It's going to be a a long time. And that's that's where I wonder, what's the government really – how much money are they really going to spend? Because this isn't going to be the end.
3: And uh, with the money being spent or uh, that's already been spent as well as prospectively, what happens to the dollar and thus, uh, you know, how how concerned are you about uh, uh, the dollar crashing? I I know gold was up over two thousand dollars yesterday. That's a. Uh, happy news for gold bugs who've been waiting for... uh,
2: Waiting to break even since 2011? Just about, yeah, exactly.
3: (laughs) Right, how would they have done uh, versus uh, just putting that money that they put into gold into the S&P, but I I digress. They're out
2: 300%, I'll tell you, that that's the number. Okay, Oh, Since 2011, they broke even on their gold, and then they lost out on a 300% move. All
3: right, we'll hold it there, and we'll uh, be back with uh, more of my conversation with Scott the Cow Guy, Shalady, Fox Business regular on discussion of COVID-19 release and recovery.
0: Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com.
3: We're back with Scott the Cow Guy, Shalady, Fox Business Regular, and I want to pick up our discussion of uh, COVID-19 relief and recovery with a uh, currency discussion, as there are many concerned about our fiscal policy, yes, but also the monetary policy and what it mean, what it may mean to a devaluation of the dollar, uh, what a currency crunch could do to uh, economic recovery.
2: Yeah, I look at that every day, and gold is one of the things I look at, but I think that gold is representative of more of an angst than anything else because if you're worried about the stock market crashing, you might want to put your money in gold. If you're worried about all the money that the government's printing, you might want to put your money in gold. If you actually think that Trump is Armageddon, you might want to put your money in gold. And then the last thing I've added, a fourth, is that because everybody's been locked up, the, the, the amount of new day traders out there is, is, is like 400% increase in some of these day trading sites as far as new customers. And a lot of times they're going to they're gonna express their views in something like gold or, say, Bitcoin. So there's a lot of new customers there as well. So that gold thing is okay. There's a lot of things that go into that, and I think that that might be getting uh, be a distraction. What I think that everybody should really look at is the ten-year yield, that interest rate. And I don't want to get everybody you know, their eyes to gloss over right now, but it's going lower every day, and that is a little bit more of a nervy kind of a situation because the bond market where they set the interest rates is way bigger than the equity market, and when that ten-year yield starts to inch towards zero, now we know we can go lower than zero, and that's my big concern. So you got some nerves in the gold market oil is 42 bucks a barrel eh, that's you know that's not going to make our refineries you know make money but then look at over, look at these interest rates as they slowly continue to like this big aircraft carrier of bad news these rates are slowly marching towards zero but as
3: long as america is still um you know the tallest midget for lack of a better description uh i don't need to be pc here
2: uh, if, They're little people.
3: As long as the tallest little. people. Yeah, the, the, the tallest uh, Chicago mayor. <laughs> How about that? Uh, as long as America's I, the, you know, you hear the same theories I do about, uh, you know, China stockpiling gold. They're going to introduce a current their, a currency tied to gold and replace uh, The dollar as the reserve currency of the world. And that's when America really craters and so on and so forth. Do you see anything uh, that catastrophic
2: in the offing? No, and it's only because I've been in the business for 32 years and I've heard those stories before. I don't know if you remember, but when I, back when the euro started, right, that was going to be the new replacement to the dollar. Mm-hmm. And a lot of big ta- big time celebrities and models started having their contracts rewritten and they wanted to be paid in euros. So it didn't happen, right? I mean, the euro's strong, but it's not, it's not the reserve currency to the world. And so I've heard this before that I'm not concerned about that, but I am concerned about fiscal policy and just, just the, the amount of money that we're, we're printing and giving away just for everybody out there. If they have a pencil, just write this down. 1 million seconds is equal to 11 and a half days in time, a billion seconds, 31.75 years, 31 and three quarter years. Okay. Now, a trillion seconds, and we're talking about a trillion-dollar package. To, well, the Democrats are talking about $3 trillion. Yeah, A trillion seconds is 31,710 years. That is the scope and the magnitude of what we're doing right now. And it will make you sick to your stomach if you really take a look at it on paper like that. And that's the problem. I, that's my biggest worry.
3: Greg in Jefferson Park. Hey, Scott. You know, one of the biggest problems that I got with all this is these guys keep
1: monetizing debt and, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, bond prices, you know, this zero interest rate crap, I mean, back, back when I worked at the board uh, back in the mid-80s, I remember bond futures being in the uh, the upper 50s, and now it's, what, 180? Yep. I mean, this is ridiculous. When, when are we going to get back to real um, markets? and one of my biggest concerns is one of these days all the doors are going to close as far as debt goes nobody's going to be able to get loans for anything be it you know school cars houses what have you and then when uh, you know the real value starts kicking in you know people think the depression was bad this will be way worse Hey, thanks for the time, guys. Thanks,
2: Greg. Yeah, I think the quick answer to that is that uh, ever since the Federal Reserve has kind of totally changed their mandate and gotten our back pockets and really have a say about what's happening as far as uh, the money, I, I think that once we finally get the Federal Reserve out of our way, because they've been, been they have been ultimately manipulating prices by doing what they're doing to the bond market to keep interest rates suppressed and artificially low. And that's the big problem. And so we get them out of our pro- out of our way, we can't get back to normal. And if they did get out of our way, that's what you're talking about as far as you know, you know, markets melting down. Because right now, look at what's happening with your equity markets. The, the, all these stocks are rising. Well, 5 out of a 495 are rising because we've got easy money out there because the Fed is letting this money go. Where else are you going to put your money? And that's why you get a little bit of that. Where thing. else are we going to put your Hang money? Hang on. Yeah, that's called the Tina trade. There is no alternative, right? That, a little bit in gold, I guess, maybe. But you can't put it in the bank. You're not going to get an interest rate on it. So here we go with the stocks. Now, and again, folks, just remember, we're setting all-time highs in, in, in the NASDAQ, which is un- slightly understandable because it's more technology stay-at-home stuff. Uh, but the, the Dow has come back remarkably well as well. It's still down on the year. But we're, we're, our economy has been destroyed. And now you've got these equity markets that make it look like it's it's okay, but we're not even close to being okay. But driven by the fang stocks, and well, but driven by easy money too. Yeah, that's. I mean, everybody thinks, well, the Fed's going to be there. This ain't going down, and, and that's and, a huge
3: problem. And and since the market is forward looking, uh, equity market is forward looking. Uh, what do you make of uh, another uh, fun you know theory you hear in cigar shops and whatnot, which is um, uh, that. Uh, there's going to be an October surprise—the announcement that a a vaccine is ready to market, even if it doesn't get out to market before the election—and uh, that's what people are trading on—that the the vaccine announcement that will come before the election.
2: That might uh, psychologically, that I would say that would, might help, but I, I would say right now, it's not going to be the panacea that people think it's going to be. No way. You know, we, we're going to have cold flu and COVID season for the rest of our lives. You will see COVID deaths on your television screen for the rest of your life. It's not going away. I don't think I'll see them because I
3: think we're going to have. We're we'll gonna, move on to
2: something else, right? Yeah. No, no, because we're going to
3: have to go full bird box and we're all going to have to wear <laughs> blindfolds before it's
2: all. No, it'll done. be something about the 1619 project or something. But it's we're going to see those types of things for the rest of our lives. We're not going to eradicate COVID-19. We're going to get a vaccine of which 50 percent of the people don't take the flu vaccine. Right. Right, so it doesn't vaccine doesn't matter. It's just going to make people feel better, but it's not going to really matter. So I I I think we're in dangerous I mean Danger Will Robinson is one of the articles I wrote a couple of weeks ago. It, it, everything is flashing yellow to me. Everything is flashing yellow. And Frank, that makes me nervous.
3: Frank in Arlington Heights. Scott, a couple of questions sir. I'm an economics
1: teacher. Um and if we don't do the $600 unemployment thing, how likely is there to be a financial collapse because of some of the things you were talking about? And then you know, there was a good article in Zero Hedge yesterday about all the Fed policies and so forth, and whether we're really going to get inflation or deflation. What's your prediction on all these things that are going on, and whether we're headed to a deflationary environment or an inflationary environment? Thanks, Frank.
2: Uh, first, the, the first question about whether or not we get the six hundred bucks. I mean, that I think that's more uh, fodder for the front pages. I don't know. I don't know if that's going to be the real big um, uh, policy that's going to make anything move or shift. It, it's just a That's a feel-good story more than I think anything else. I know we have a lot of people that are unemployed, but I also think that if we just would open up the gates and put these people back to work, it would be a lot better. Number two is um, we're – I I think we've been worried about inflation, and we've been trying to buy inflation since 2008. I think we're in a deflationary cycle, and that's psychological, just like COVID, and I think that's the real big worry.
0: Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the show. When it comes to China and uh, the persecution of religious minorities in that country, or just people of faith generally, a lot of focus has rightly been on the Uyghur-Muslim minority in that country that has been, um, well, have been relegated to concentration camps effectively uh, in addition to all the other horrific stories about the uh, human rights abuses, the violations. We know how the Falun Gong has been treated by the Chinese. Perhaps not enough attention has been devoted to how Christians and Catholics have been treated by the Chinese government as well, the godless communist Chinese. No more Tolerant of religious diversity and peaceful pluralism uh, than uh, you know, previous iterations of totalitarian regimes, including the Soviets. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Thomas Farr, who's the president of the Religious Freedom Institute in Washington, D.C. He was the first director of the State Department's Office of International Religious Freedom, and he argues in a recent piece in at uh, FirstThings.com, Rusty Reno, our friend Rusty Reno's uh, publication, well, he serves as the editor there, that America's religious freedom diplomacy is more effective than ever and should be uh, used uh, more aggressively with respect to the Chinese communists. Uh, For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Thomas Farr. Thomas Farr, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Um, So let's start with uh, this uh, thesis in the piece that you uh, offer at FirstThings.com. America's religious freedom diplomacy is more effective than ever, but it can do even more to address the problem of religious persecution in China if our foreign policy establishment has the will. What is it that we're not doing that we could be?
6: Well, the reason I think it's effective is because of the guy that is running the secretary of state and the guy that is running our religious freedom policy ambassador, Sam Brownback who is a real activist, he's savvy, he knows what he's doing, he knows how to run a outfit like this. He's a former governor of Kansas, former senator, was involved in the production of the policy that we're talking about right here, the US policy of advancing religious freedom. And in my view, Secretary Pompeo has just been a splendid supporter of what Brownback is doing. They have had annual, they've had two annual ministerials First of their kinds, bringing over a hundred foreign delegations to the State Department over the last couple of years to talk about this kind of issue, not just China, but the, the rest of the world. So that's what I mean when I say more effective than ever, more activist, more deep dive into the issue. This is, first and foremost, as you said, Dan, a, a human rights issue. Uh, you know, it's the right, I think. Most of us would agree that every human being has, by virtue of being human, it's not granted by government, certainly not the government of China, or even our own government. It's recognized, it ought to be recognized by governments. Our guys get this. hasn't always been so. We've had some good people working in this area in U.S. foreign policy. But they really get it, and they know how to take this basic idea and broaden it and deepen it and talk to people who don't necessarily agree with the human rights argument and making arguments that this is good for national security, good for economy, and so forth. So what I was arguing in the first thing piece is that we need to make arguments that even the Chinese communists can hear. And that is about as tough as you can get. I mean, the only thing that might be tougher is trying to get ISIS Hmm. or terrorists to do it, or maybe the North Koreans or something like that. But it's, it's pretty close because these people, as you say, are communists. They are, they have a totalitarian instinct and they understand that religion is a problem. This is what's happening to the Uyghur Muslims, to the Christians. They're very different, obviously. They have different religious beliefs. But what they share is a belief that there's something more important than the state, and that is whatever their concept of God is. If they're truly Muslims or Jews or Christians, in some ways this is true of Tibetan Buddhism as well. The state cannot restrict my right to believe in what I believe. So this is a threat to the Chinese, they've always understood it. They understood it during the Cultural Revolution, and the Premier, the President of China now, Xi Jinping, seems to understand it more vividly than any of his predecessors, with the exception of Mao, which is why he has been so vicious in his approach to this. So the answer, the short answer to your question is, what can we do? We need to continue to condemn them But now we have what we have in front of us. We have a Chinese government that is now moving on Hong Kong. It is responsible in some ways for this terrible COVID crisis. None of this, by the way, was was present when I wrote that piece. It's simply gotten worse. And to me, the prescription remains the same as in the piece in principle. Number one, keep the spotlight on what these people are doing. It's incredible how... People in our own country, including Christians, don't have a clue what's happening to Christians in
3: China. Yeah, And, I want, or, or yeah, and I want to pick up there uh, when we come back up uh, to the, the treatment of what of Christians in China, of Catholics in China, more with Thomas Fair, uh, Thomas Farr, excuse me, president of the Religious Freedom Institute in DC, who is the first director of the State Department's Office of International Religious Freedom. We'll be back with more later.
2: We are
0: seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the show. We're talking to Thomas Farr. He's the president of the Religious Freedom Institute in D.C. and the first director of the State Department's Office of International Religious Freedom back in from 99 to 03 under George W. Bush. Mr. Farr, I wanted to get to just you were talking before the break about to what we don't understand about how Christians and Catholics are treated in totalitarian China by the Chinese communists and by that Politburo. Uh, I wanted to give you the opportunity to give us a little bit of flavor and just exactly what the treatment is, the sort of persecution faced by Christians and Catholics in addition to Uyghurs and other other persons of different faith
6: traditions. Sure. Keeping in mind that in quality, none of this is new. It's been going on for decades in China. But in quantity, it has intensified. It's gotten worse. It's become more systematic under this President Xi Jinping. And what's happening is, in essence, a decision, a policy decision from the very top that what used to be called the underground still is properly understood as the underground Protestant and Catholic churches, namely those that do not buy into the communist model for christianity they are being wiped out they are being coerced into abandoning their underground churches is an attempt to make these churches arms of the communist party and you testified
3: and you testified to uh, what you were describing recently before the uh, house human rights commission uh and i i wonder um what you want from Pope Francis on this topic, particularly as it relates to that uh, missing bishop, presumed dead, uh, and, uh, and, and just what you're describing in terms of the treatment of Catholics in China generally, I, I haven't heard much from Pope Francis on the topic.
6: Right. Well, what, what the Pope wants uh, is a good thing. He wants unity for China's Catholics. I mean, who, who, none of us could criticize that as an end because they've been divided since the Communist Revolution in the way that we've been talking about. And of course, all Christians should have an opportunity to be to be unified in China and everywhere else, including the Catholics and the Protestants. But this uh, agreement is not public. And so there are a lot of reports about it. We think we know what it says. And if, it's, if these reports are correct, they haven't been denied. The Pope, who is supposed to choose bishops, I mean, that's Part of the Catholic way of doing things, the bishops are the the descendants, if you will, the spiritual descendants of the apostles. The Pope is the descendant of the apostle Peter, the first Pope. And so, the Catholic way of doing this for two thousand years has been that the Pope chooses these bishops when he can, when he's permitted to. Uh, this agreement allows, in effect, the Chinese controlled mechanism to choose the candidates for bishop. They go all the way to Beijing for approval. Then they're submitted to the Pope. Now, what the Vatican says is the Pope has a veto, and, and I'm quite certain that's true. But what happens if they send? I mean, first of all, they're not going to send genuine Catholics who are going to speak out against the right. communist regime. Right. So they send the an apparatchik there, and the Pope vetoes him. Well, who who benefits from that? Catholic unity does, all that does is leave the vacant the post vacant, like. Bishop Fu, uh, Su's, sorry, Bishop Shi is the way it's pronounced, uh, has been vacant all of these years and run by, in effect, a, uh, a substitute that is, if not controlled by Beijing, certainly heavily influenced. So the point is, it doesn't work. I'm really trying to make a very practical point here. This doesn't work, and I think the Vatican ought to get out of this agreement and return to a very un- uncomfortable position. These people are being persecuted, worse than ever, and the answer to that is not to cut a deal with the devil. It is to return to the popes. There's nobody in the world that can speak with the moral authority he does about the persecution of human beings. That's my view. That's what he ought to be doing, and he ought to be calling upon the world, drawing fire upon this, spiritually speaking, to this issue, putting a spotlight on it, I want, and I
3: wanted to get your uh, take on a, um, a matter of, of uh, faith for uh, Christians in America. Uh, perhaps most uh, recently and notably, uh, the example illustrated by Grace Community Church in California, where the pastor there, John MacArthur, has vowed to continue in-person church services uh, in contravention of California strictures covid-19 strictures saying we will obey god rather than men we're going to be faithful to the lord and we're going to leave the results to him whatever happens is going to be what he allows to happen but he will be on our side because we will be obedient and faithful to his word he's um he, he recognizes he may face fine or arrest for holding indoor services but uh, uh, he's had enough of state intervention in the operation of his church
6: Notice that the principles here are the same that we were just talking about. The the dimensions of this are very different. We're not talking about people being brutalized, but the issue of the state telling religion what to do is the same one And, and trying to mold religion to its own aims. I think there's a tension here, so let me say in the beginning, I personally believe as a Christian, as a Catholic, that we have a responsibility to others to try to avoid the spread of this coronavirus. That said, my, my uh, church uh, here in Virginia has solved this. Uh, as far as I can see, we, we have, you know, we don't all sit on the same rows. We have social distancing, and we wear masks, and we go to, we go to mass. Um, what's going on here, in my view, is the coercion. It's not just California. It's all over the country. It's isolated, but it is in many states, certain governors and attorneys general have decided that they're going to stop Christians from gathering. At the same time, they're going to let protests take place by people who are there, not in you know the, the tens or the scores, but by the thousands not wearing masks and protesting and being violent too. Or in the middle of the spectrum, we had this thing in Mississippi where there was a small African-American church meeting in a parking lot Mm -hmm. in their cars, and the mayor sent the troops there, the troopers there to find these people, and down literally within a mile, people were packed into Home Depot. What's going on there? This simply does not make sense unless there is some, uh, some malign intent against religious people. Now, you know, that may sound a little alarmist, but I really believe that we have to be alert to this.
3: He is Thomas Farr, President of the Religious Freedom Institute in Washington, D.C. He was the first director of the State Department's Office of International Religious Freedom as well. Thomas Farr, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having
5: me. Some things will never change
0: the more you listen. The more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
3: Welcome back to the show. Uh, we spent some time talking about uh, the arguments being offered by New York Times op-ed writers, from Tom Friedman a couple weeks ago to Elizabeth Drew the other day, as to why. Joe Biden should not debate Donald Trump. Why the debate should be just canceled altogether. Uh, Elizabeth Drew's argument trying to pretend like this wasn't about Biden and Trump. The timing notwithstanding. Uh, Joe Lockhart, former Clintonista White House press secretary. The one thing Joe Biden cannot do, should not do under any circumstances, debate President Trump because he's dishonest. They're going to need to come up with better spin than that. Well, you can end it, I guess, because uh, the boss has spoken. uh, Jill Biden. Uh, was asked the question by Dana Perino on Fox News yesterday. Is uh, Joe Biden going to be present and accounted for for the debates?
7: Oh, yes, he will. Yeah, he'll be I there.
3: Think he'll be there. OK, well, uh, Joe's committed to it. The campaign agreed to it. Joe Biden is uh, enthusiastically uh, recommitting to it. So I guess that should uh, remove remove uh, any of the controversy surrounding whether or not uh, there will be the debates that are really necessary, as I said yesterday. Go ahead and take the advice of Tom Friedman or Elizabeth Drew or Joe Lockhart. You'll lose. You cannot duck the debates and win. You cannot not show up. You cannot uh, stand and be, be, present yourself and stand and deliver on the same stage as the President of the United States when you're a challenger or, frankly, the President of the United States, same thing. You cannot not stand and deliver in the face of your challenger and be elected because the people rightly want to see their candidates. In that moment, how do they perform? How do they present themselves? It's an important moment. Uh, I completely disagree that the debates are just simply professional wrestling contests. They don't have to be that way. Oh, they're just uh, who can string together the most bromides. Well, they can turn into those things, but it's up to the candidates to prevent that. To some extent, the panelists or the moderator as well. Change the format if you want, as the Wall Street Journal editorial board argued. Go ahead. You want uh, longer answers to provide uh, the opportunity and the demand that more detail is is given, go ahead. But you can't duck the debates. And uh, Joe Biden is not really presenting a compelling response to the charge that Joe Biden is having trouble ducking, which is that he is an empty vessel for the radical left.
7: You know, Joe's a moderate, and that doesn't mean that his ideas aren't progressive and bold and forward thinking, but he's, he's not someone who's left. He's not someone who's right. He's a moderate, and that's who he's always been.
3: Yeah, that's not what that uh, Biden-Bernie manifesto says, is it? That's uh, Joe Biden is a chameleon, which is what he's always been. Actually, Jill, I understand you have to flack for your husband. Let's, but but let's be real honest. It doesn't take uh, much of a walk through the last forty years to pick out obvious position shifts from Joe uh, Biden, including things like like uh, pro-life Joe Biden versus pro-abortion Joe Biden. I mean, give me a break. Okay, And uh, Joe Biden is completely beholden to the radical left. Uh, His uh, failure in the minds of many to demonstrate that he has the mental acuity for the job right now just reinforces the notion that he is beholden to the radical left and will be Obama staffers advancing Bernie Sanders policies if he's elected is the handle. And I think it's the right one. And that's going to be a real challenge for him in those debates. He's going to show up. Welcome back to the show. Follow us at com on social media at DanProfShow. President Trump in his COVID briefing on Tuesday evening had uh, this to say about uh, the calls for a national policy. And when you have Democrats like Jamie Reskin from Maryland calling for a national policy, what they're really calling for is a national lockdown.
5: An extended lockdown would fail to target resources at the highest risk populations while inflicting massive economic pain, long-lasting damage on society and public health as a whole. So there won't be lockdowns, but we watch specific areas. We're very careful.
3: Uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, there's not at the local level a push for lockdowns of a different sort, lockdowns of schools that necessarily impact the lives and livelihoods of the parents of those kids who are going to be at home, e-learning, learning in quotation marks, Rather than in a classroom setting, you to have Chicago public school system announcing today that they are uh, withdrawing their original proposal under pressure from the teachers unions, although that's not how it's being presented. That's the fact to go from a hybrid model two days on, three days off for Chicago public schools and the uh, 300,000 kids in that system to uh, full remote learning. And you have this story in New York Magazine. I mean, just the headline alone. What will the first day of school look like? Terrified teachers, obstinate officials, exhausted parents inside the city's messy reopening battle. It's messy because of the politics, not because of the science. And you have politicians and teachers union bosses, which are just another form of politicians, actually fighting the science. The evidence, again, on... In-classroom instruction, based on the an assessment of the tradeoffs, is so overwhelmingly in favor of in-person classroom that no rational person could be opposed to it. And yet in big cities th- th- across the country, the teachers' union bosses and the politicians they control continue their protestations. I want to teach, but I don't want to die. I want to teach, but I want to live. This sophistry that's gaslighting at least some percentage of the parents, even within these schools, despite what it means for the intellectual and social development of their kids. It's a remarkable thing. It's a sad thing, the politicization of all of this. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined again by David Marcus. He is a columnist for the American Conservative. Uh, excuse me. A New York correspondent for The Federalist. I'm sorry, the com. David Marcus joins us. Uh, thanks for joining us again, David. Appreciate it.
8: Oh, my
3: pleasure. I love the American conservative, too. Yeah, I'm, sure, I'm sure. Sorry. I don't want to give you more work than you already have. Um, uh, so, I, I mean, the scaremongering, I know you wrote a, a good piece about how the New York Times is scaremongering on the vaccine. And we'll get to that. But let's talk about the schools, because you have, you know, 50 million families uh, who, who have their lives uh, at bar here. And this uh, the media coverage and the behavior of the teachers unions and the politicians in big cities, including New York.
8: Look, I I think we're close to the point where where this borders on child abuse. Um, I'm here in Brooklyn and my son's school ended in mid-March. He really was not able to be around any kids for four months. Last week, thankfully, his music camp opened and. When he got back I, the change in him was remarkable. I, I mean it, it was night and day he, he actually saw his friends and played with kids and the idea that we're going to deny children each other's company let alone learning for this extended period of time it, it's absolutely insane and it's it's quite dangerous.
3: And, uh, and, and and how do you explain to somebody why this is happening despite what we know from uh, reputable universities uh, about the spring e-learning session and how ineffectual it was, uh, how much it slowed the intellectual development of kids in terms of reading and math in particular, this from a Brown University look? In addition to as you, what you're describing, what parents see with their kids, in addition to how this interrupts parents' ability to work, if they're even allowed to work, how do you explain the teachers' union position, the position of politicians like de Blasio, like Lightfoot, like Big City, other big city mayors uh, on this? What what could be their motivation?
8: Well, I, look, the teachers' union sees an opportunity here, Um They see a chance to uh, score a whole bunch of goodies by playing the victim and saying, you know, if if I have to do the same thing that cops and grocery store employees and and, people at Walmart and, by the way, the counselors at my son's music camp have to do, then you've got to give me more money or you've got to defund the police or whatever ridiculous things they want. But I will say this. I think the teachers unions need to be careful uh, because they might be overplaying their hand if they keep the schools closed and parents across the country have to start looking for other options. Those parents might just find that they like those other options. And if that happens, then the teachers unions are in a world of trouble.
3: Uh, as I mentioned, you also wrote about the politicization of uh, the vaccine development. And, uh, you know, we have uh, uh, a lot of progress that's been reported, positive news coming out of the uh, various uh, enterprises that are pursuing a vaccine and uh, but that has not uh, prevented the New York Times from trying to uh, you know gaslight people about uh, the vaccine project Operation Warp Speed as it's termed uh, just as it has done all other aspects of the coverage of this pandemic.
8: Yeah I had the opportunity at the end of last week uh, to to head over to HHS uh, Health and Human Services down in DC and interview. Dr. Moncef Slaoui, who's the, the head of Operation Warp Speed. Um, and, and he's extremely confident, as is Dr. Fauci, um, that there will be a, a workable vaccine by the end of the year, which should be news that every American celebrates. I mean, it, first of all, it's a remarkable achievement. It, it, this is much faster than, than has ever been done before, but it's also the key to unlocking the lockdown, right? Um and the fact that the New York Times, with really no evidence, would just sort of baselessly say, hey, we're worried that these guys are cutting corners, is very dangerous. I mean, you know, it, it, it almost borders on being an, an anti-vaxxer. And it, it it's really just this situation where, you know, if if Trump says it's daylight outside, the New York Times is going to say it's night outside. So, I mean, you know, maybe the best thing Trump could do right now is say – the vaccine sucks. And all of a sudden the New York times would love it. It's, it's, it's really just, it's really crazy.
3: It it is on the same time you have academics that are uh, left leaning, suggesting that, um, there be an emergency use authorization for vaccines showing promise that are in sort of final stage clinical trials before they've been fully vetted, you know? So for example, the, the, uh, the Oxford-AstraZeneca, you know, once it gets to sort of you know, some level of critical mass, uh, more likely than not to do no harm. Then emergency use authorize it to get it to market. So, uh, the one hand, they're they're claiming that Operation Warp Speed is cutting corners. On the other hand, you have some that have the same disposition of the New York Times suggesting you cut corners.
8: Yeah, listen, this is happening fast in part because unlike. Previous efforts like SARS, all, everything is getting thrown at this, uh, which is actually its own problem as well. As The New York Times has reported that across the world, uh, about 1.5 million people are going to die from tuberculosis. Yes, because because the medical infrastructure is only being directed at, at, at uh, COVID right now. But yeah, listen. In the next six weeks, Operation Warp Speed is going to be doing tests with over 30,000 people. They're not going to put a, a vaccine out uh, on on the market uh, until they know that that it's not going to do any harm. And one of the things that that, that people should also know is that, according to Slowey, right now, between 15 and 25 percent of Americans have already had COVID, which means that even if you even if you don't get everyone to take the vaccine, even if only 50, 60 percent of people take the vaccine. That will get us to the point of herd immunity beginning to happen. So to me, this is this is maybe not quite the the Manhattan Project, maybe not quite the moonshot, but it's pretty close. and, And it really should be something for Americans to be proud of. But so many Americans today are just incapable of being proud of America, proud of our accomplishments or you know, or, or even sharing good news if they think it's going to help the other side—it's yeah. it's a problem.
3: It's—it's it's a sickness, really. He is David Marcus, New York correspondent for The Federalist, TheFederalist.com. David, uh, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Okay.
0: Profshow.com
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. John Cass, a Chicago Tribune columnist being targeted for professional elimination by the Jacobin mob uh, that uh, presents itself in the form of the Chicago Tribune Guild. Which manufactured charges of anti-Semitism against him for a column he wrote about George Soros's contributions to prosecutors around the country, including Kim Fox, who uh, have adopted a, a position of non-prosecution for uh, what they term our minor crimes and have made cities arguably less safe because of their cultural disposition to non-prosecution of crime. Well, I mean, you know, I'm just saying, I guess you could argue that this is a sensible public policy. It's not a particularly compelling argument based on the fact that murders are up 24% year over year in the country and it's being driven by big cities where you have Marxist mayors and non-prosecuting attorneys, but okay, you want to make the case. Uh, I'm not sure of what it is. I mean, I know uh, de Blasio in New York was celebrating the fact they have the lowest uh, jail population since World War Two. Meanwhile, meanwhile, shootings and murders were up 30% and 40%. I mean, it's it's just uh, remarkable. But anyway, what Cass recounted in his column for everybody's memory was essentially incontrovertible facts that were reported to the FEC contributions to campaigns from PACs and whatnot that were reported by Uh, The Marxist brethren of the Chicago Tribune Guild and outlets like Politico, not in controversy. But when you're looking for a way to tear somebody down, you take whatever opportunity you can, particularly if you're unbounded by facts. And that's the approach that the Chicago Tribune Guild took. And, of course, they get cover with more smearing in lieu of argument on the merits from George Soros's kid, Alexander Soros. His kid. How old is he? 90. Uh, George Soros writing at NBC News, NBC dot com, suborning this column, uh, vile allegations of anti-Semitism not confined to the margins of social media. Just last week, John Cass, a prominent conservative columnist for the Chicago Tribune, claimed my father was somehow responsible for the unrest in Chicago and other cities because of his support for a liberal approach to criminal justice. One that Cass alleged has allowed felons out on the streets and created an environment that feeds the protests. Well, it's not an allegation that it's allowed felons on the street. The average uh, number of arrests for a person arrested in Chicago for committing a shooting or a murder is 12. So it's not an allegation that felons are being allowed on the streets. It's a fact. Um, Number one. Number two, he didn't allege that George Soros was responsible He alleged that George Soros, he alleged something that is, again, incontrovertible, that George Soros is supporting financially prosecutors who take this approach and produce the results that are being produced in Chicago. That's what he actually alleged. But uh, he goes on, does Alexander Soros, to say, blaming Jews for mass civil rights movements. Is that what we have? Is a textbook white supremacy tactic that's been around for longer than anyone reading this article has been alive. The logic is simple. Those who promote these lies want you to believe that black and brown people are not smart or strategic enough to organize such actions themselves, so Jews must be pulling the strings. That is uh, such a a line of bull jive. It's all specious. It is uh, really despicable, actually, the disregard for the truth or anything resembling good faith in disagreement. But that's the nature of the Jacobin mob, isn't it? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the said John Cass, uh, his first interview since this all broke last week. And by the way, the Chicago Tribune moving him from his page two position, uh, the editor-in-chief saying that was to improve the transparency of the Tribune news product. Uh, okay. Uh, John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Uh, so uh, h- how are things? I've seen some uh, action on social media where, after manufacturing this uh, allegation against you for the Soros column, they're now tr- going back and rereading your previous columns to see if they can manufacture some more.
4: Are they? I really i am not paying attention to what they're doing after they defamed me as a religious bigot. I uh, And most likely for not agreeing with them politically, uh, I really don't follow it anymore.
3: Were you um, surprised by this, or were you just surprised that? The- yeah, I was surprised. You were surprised. These are these are pe- pe- these people know me. Mm-hmm. They know me. I
4: work with them. They're colleagues. I think some of them are good reporters. They, it's this is happening in newsrooms all across the country. It's not just me, but when it happens to you, and you're. You know, rules for radicals, number thirteen: you isolate the individual, cut off, you know, cut off support networks, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Individuals are softer than institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it's what we're seeing. And uh, you, Dan Proff, in the Morning Answer, were the first to uh, support me, and uh, that's why I'm here now. You and Charlie Lipson. Uh, Many others, you know, the uh, Bruce Hume, uh, others, many others writing about this, realizing that it's not just me. It's happening all over the country, which is why I, I write about, and I'm going, going to continue using the phrase, to encourage the others. You know, I, I want to encourage people to stand up. You've said it many times, stand up and talk. Speak. It's your country. Um, I don't care wh- whether you go how you vote, whether you go for Trump or Joe Biden, whose favorite flavor now is banana republic. I wrote that this morning's <laughs> column. You know, I really don't care. The, the, the American tradition is one of speaking your mind. And, uh, but personally, it hurt very much. It hurt very much, especially since people who know me, should know that uh, when Louis Farrakhan made his, uh, makes his uh, anti-Semitic remarks to others, I stood up and ripped on him uh, while the left was silent. And uh, when people forget that kind of stuff or ignore it and then come after me personally and paint me as a bigot, even though The Washington Post, the New York Times, Huffington Post, even the Sun-Times and many other organizations had written the same stuff. I did not um, mention his heritage or his ethnicity or his uh, religion. I really don't care about that kind of stuff. You know that. I
3: know. I care
4: about, I care about, I don't care about, what does Dan Krofft say? I don't care about non-behavioral
3: characteristics.
4: Mm -hmm. I care about what you do is who you are, not, you know, how you're born.
3: When we come back with the Tribune's John Cass, uh, let's uh, visit the actual column in question and have a discussion on the merits, uh, what John Cass actually wrote and the charges that were leveled against him. More of our exclusive interview with Chicago Tribune columnist John Cass. He'll always be the page two columnist to me when we return.
0: Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
3: We're back with Chicago Tribune columnist John Cass, and uh, let's uh, talk about uh, the column in question as well as ultimately your response to the charges that were leveled. Uh, I think any fair-minded reader of that piece sees what it obviously was, which is a discussion of public policy in the area of criminal justice, law and order, peace on the streets. I wonder if um, you're getting uh, what kind of uh, reaction you're getting uh, among your colleagues at the Tribune. Are there is there anybody rallying to your defense, even privately?
4: Um, There are some people who, uh, you know, reporters who uh, reached out to me and Said they that what was done to me was unfair and wrong, and uh, and of course Kristen McQuarrie, uh, who's my supervisor, uh, has been in my corner, mm-hmm. and I appreciate that very much because you know, I mean it's it's tough when you're um, isolated in in that kind of environment, but you know what what really bothers me because I, I still love the institution of the Chicago Tribune. I still think it's important, and uh, what bothers me is, from a, a journalistic perspective, is if you're going to if you're going to condemn someone or write, write anything about anything, you know, there's a tradition that we call you check the clips, you go back and you research a little bit and find out what who said what about that, that thing you're writing about. And for not, you know, I was a copy boy years ago, 35 years ago, running copy, and the morgue would send clips to reporters in a pneumatic tube. I would run and get it out of the, you know, when it came up from the morgue, run to the reporters, they'd look over the clips and see what had been said. And the fact that uh, their ideology, and I'm speaking here of the executive board of the guild, not the entire paper, but the, their ideology, um, obviated uh, journalistic uh, practice is bad because it, I mean, they say they love the newspaper, but they demean the practice of journalism before the eyes of all the readers by doing something like this and not checking the clips, which is what, you know, any legman man that I, that I had, I said, did you check the clips on this? And they didn't, you know, I would. Let's put it this way, Dan. I would not be
3: happy yeah, well, with that person. Well, also, to, I mean, let's be honest. It was there really a need to check the clips? Like, uh, you've just arrived on the scene. Who is this John Cass people are speaking of? Uh, I mean, you've been the Patriot columnist there for more than two decades. They know who you are, they know what you write. Uh, conservative columnist, that's the that's the problem. Conservative columnist. And, and this was just I, for some reason, somebody thought it was a good idea. This is our opportunity to pounce. But they didn't need to check the clips because they're not interested in the facts. They're interested in looking for angles in to to take you out, aren't they? Well,
4: that's what it seems like to a fair minded, reasonable person. If you apply the reasonable man test, maybe they would uh, agree with that.
3: The column you wrote after this occurred. Yeah. Uh, included uh, some of the most uh, uh, powerful and uh, moving language that I think you've written in your life. Um, As somebody who's read you for most of those two decades, you've been the page two columnist. The most important thing we leave is our name. We leave that to our children and I will not soil my name by groveling to anyone in this or any other newsroom. Uh, That is a, a wonderful example to set for, All those uh, kids in J schools around the country who think they're going to go off to be do something courageous and important. Well, they're not going to go off to do something courageous and important if they don't adopt that as their personal credo. I'll tell you that.
4: And thanks, Dan and Scott. uh, You know what? Beyond me, beyond what happens to me, it's that the American people, I hope, have to uh, stand up. It's not about whether you vote for Trump or not. It's about speaking your mind as an American. And being and not being afraid. You just had a segment on earlier about people who are afraid to tell, you know, uh, pollsters where they go or what they believe. I understand that. That's a Chicago tradition. It's been, you know, people have been afraid to t- talk to pollsters in Chicago for uh, almost a century now. But people have to stand up. They have to realize that. They have to encourage the others, encourage your neighbors, encourage your friends, be an example. Not John Cass as the example. I'm not wearing some kind of cape. I'm not a superhero. I'm just a guy sitting on the porch of a three-flat in Chicago talking to you. But I think that people have to stand up and realize by doing so, we encourage the others. And someday, Dan, I'll get into all that, where that phrase comes from. Mm-hmm. Voltaire and all that, all that mm-hmm. stuff you love, you know, mm-hmm. etymology and going, which one's the insect, which one's the word, I forget.
3: John Cash, Chicago Tribune columnist, you'll always be page two to us.
4: Thanks, Tim.
0: a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the show. Following our conversation with Chicago Tribune columnist John Cass and uh, his targeting by the Jacobin mobs for professional elimination for being a conservative and the opportunities they manufactured out of whole cloth to try to make their case that John Cash should be brought to heel. Another example of uh, punishment from the elites who have political power on the basis of the identitarian politics to which so many have been brought to heel. This uh, outing of female athletes who signed a letter urging the NCAA not to boycott Idaho over the state's ban on women competing as men or men competing as women in athletics 309 women who oppose transgender inclusion in sports want to do so in secrets, but martina navratilova and her co-signers could not hide from us being uh, gay like martina navratilova not enough for out sports they uh doxed martina navratilova and her co-signers so as to you know Send the signal to uh, the Clockwork Orange Brigades to uh, try to humiliate them or uh, perhaps worse, but certainly to shame them, to make them wear the scarlet eye of identitarian politics or, I guess, failure to abide identitarian politics. Idaho became the first day in the nation to pass the Fairness in Women's Sports Act, which, again, prevents female sports teams from allowing transgenders who identify as females to compete. It was signed by, by Republican Governor Brad Little back in March. And, uh, of course, immediately the ACLU filed a lawsuit to prevent the bill from becoming law. The uh, 309 names made public. The rest, those signatories, had remained private because, of course, some people were afraid of the backlash they might get on social media for being labeled a transphobe or a hater and so on and so forth. Uh, This, uh, according to Alliance for Defending Freedom, the attorneys representing two female athletes who uh, wanted to be part of a suit. To uh, block Idaho's new law. So, what do we know about uh, the science here? Right? Aren't we in the er- in the era where we follow the science? This is important, particularly for something as serious as a medical procedure, for example, to transition to have gender reassignment surgery. I, I'm, and by the way, I, I think I said block the Idaho law. The two female athletes represented by Alliance for Defending Freedom, back, back. Idaho's new law, of course. They don't want to compete against men in female sports. They don't want female sports destroyed by men pretending to be women participating. And I'm not trying to denigrate those who have a mental health issue in terms of their gender identity. But I am saying that uh, there's a difference between men and women. You can't just identify and you can't just compete, nor should you, not if you want to protect female sports. Well, um, the American Journal of Psychiatry in October of last year, published a paper titled Reduction in Mental Health Treatment, Reduction in Mental Health Treatment Utilization Among Transgender Individuals After Gender-Affirming Surgeries, as they're now called, uh, Newspeak, gender-affirming surgeries, not reassignment. This study claimed that after having sex reassignment surgeries, the patient was less likely to need need mental health treatment. Well, in a very underreported correction to that study, just this past weekend, the editors of the scientific journal, the American Journal of Psychiatry, issued a correction in which, among other things, they said, quote, the results demonstrated, the results of their study, demonstrated no advantage of surgery in relation to subsequent mood or anxiety disorder-related health care. Uh, in fact, the original results already demonstrated no benefits to hormonal transition. That part didn't need a correction. So as Ryan Anderson writes over at the Heritage Foundation's uh, Daily Signal, the largest data set on sex reassignment procedures, both hormonal and surgical, reveals that such procedures do not bring the promised mental health benefits. In fact, in their correction to the original study, the authors point out that on one score, treatment for anxiety disorders, patients who had sex reassignment surgeries actually did worse than those who did not. You would think that uh, patients suffering from gender dysphoria would want to know that uh, the benefits being advertised actually haven't materialized, at least according to the most expansive study Done on the topic. No mental health benefits for hormonal interventions in the population. And again, on one count, treatment of anxiety disorders, Parents who had uh, patients who had the sex reassignment surgery did worse. You know, this speaks to a study we covered on this show a few weeks back, a study done by University of British Columbia researchers that was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Looking at those who uh, are inclined to be frequent signalers of virtuous victimhood. Again, the journal of personality and social psychology, the uh, results of this uh, look at frequent virtue signalers is that they tend to uh, be more likely to exhibit the dark triad of personality traits, Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy leading to characteristics like self-promotion, emotional callousness, duplicity, and the tendency to take advantage of others, according to this research paper done by University of British Columbia researchers. This held true even when controlling for factors that may make people vulnerable to being mistreated or disadvantaged in a society, as well as the importance they place on being a virtuous individual as part of their self-concept. That's why it's impossible to discuss things with them rationally, because to disagree is to bring their world crashing down around them. Victim signaling, the researchers write, may be used as a social influence tactic that can motivate recipients of the signal to voluntarily transfer resources to the signaler. Yeah, you don't say. I think we're saying that, uh, see that play out in practice. Positive correlation between the dark triad scores and the frequency of emitting the virtuous victim signal. Yeah, the dark triad. Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy. Those wonderful... Virtuous victimhood signalers that we're turning the keys of the country over to incredible. And it doesn't matter who gets hurt, whether it's somebody suffering from gender dysphoria. Whether it's a business owner, uh, whether it's the parents of children. uh, Who can't go back to school, can't send their kids back to school. And have to uh, stay home from work, risk their job, risk their livelihood, if they're even allowed to do that, plus now pay for daycare in addition to continuing to pay property taxes and everything else to the state to make sure no public sector worker, including teachers, miss a check, miss a meal. It's remarkable, isn't it? Important studies, interesting commentary on the culture, in addition to our discussion from John Cass. This is the direction you want to take, America? This is the direction you want to allow America to be taken by a small minority of Machiavellian narcissistic psychopaths. Not me. This is Dan Prof. The
0: more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
3: Welcome back to the show and uh, just continuing on our theme. The examples are just endless these days from our conversation with John Cass to the discussion of the corrected study on gender reassignment surgery before the break to now this. The Northwest Film Center kicked off a uh, film festival, Cinema Unbound, a summer drive-in movie series. This is in Oregon. Uh August 6th is uh, supposed to screen the 1990 action comedy Kindergarten Cop starring one Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, an immigrant. How about that? Uh where he uh, you know, goes uh undercover as a kindergarten teacher in order to bust a drug dealer. You know, that uh Schwarzenegger movie writes itself. I think the uh, signature line was uh uh one of the kindergartners telling Arnold Schwarzenegger the pretend teacher that boys have a penis and girls have a vagina and Arnold Schwarzenegger saying, thanks for the tip. Yes. Uh, Wonderful cinema. Well, a problem for Portland author Lois Levine. Is this really the time to be showing kindergarten top national reckoning on over policing is a weird time to revive kindergarten cop. uh, When we are trying to end the school to prison pipeline. There's nothing entertaining about the presence of police in schools, not even Arnold, apparently, which feeds the school to prison pipeline in which African-American, Latinx and other kids of color are criminalized rather than educated. Five and six year olds are handcuffed and hauled off to jail routinely in this country. And this criminalizing of children increases dramatically when cops are assigned to work in schools. Boy, that is a real hypersensitivity to a Schwarzenegger rom-com, isn't it? Uh, Okay. (laughs) OK. She went on to say, I mean, unbelievable. uh, In a message uh, sent over the weekend, kindergarten cop out. Why does Northwest Film Center think there's anything fun about cops traumatizing schoolchildren? I mean, I agree that Schwarzenegger's acting is traumatizing. But, uh, you know, those kids, uh, I'm sure, were properly prepped before they were on set with Arnold. Listen to Levine. These how unhinged these people are. It's true. Cop is only a kindergarten cop is only a movie. So are Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind. But we recognize films like those are not good family fun, quote unquote. They are relics of how pop culture feeds racist assumptions. Birth of a Nation being compared, or kindergarten cop, I should say, being compared to Birth of a Nation in terms of racist propaganda. Are you freaking kidding me? There is just no reasoning with these people. Uh, shocking that it's from an author from Portland. Shocking that it's happening in Oregon. Kindergarten cop glorifying policing in school, o- along with Gone with the Wind, which was bad enough. Now that needs to be on the verboten list. Remarkable times, don't you think? This is Dan Proff. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com on social media at Dan Prof Show and or at Dan Prof. Slavery uh, still exists in this world. Uh, we've mentioned it before, but uh, we're about to have a different discussion, different aspect of it. We usually mention it in the context of Pakistan or Eritrea where you have people literally being bought and sold for the purposes of their labor. And uh, according to a piece of the American conservativecom by Casey Chalk who cites uh, a U.N., number 40.3 million people globally are estimated to be enslaved as of today in 2020 in our 2020 world and uh no we're just not talking about uh american companies like nike using chinese slave labor with the ascent of the chinese communists that's bad enough we talked about that last week think about something else and uh how maybe the black lives matter movement despite all its fanfare is advancing the enslavement including of black girls For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Casey Chalk, who's a columnist for the American Conservative, Crisis Magazine, and the New Oxford Review. Casey, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
9: Again, thank you very much for having me on again.
3: So um, Black Lives Matter is advancing slavery, even as we're having a discussion about how to reckon with America's original sin of slavery. Uh, Explain.
9: Sure. Yeah, as you mentioned, um, slavery is a global problem, but it's also a problem right here at home. There's a 2018 U.S. Department of State report that says that the U.S. is one of the three worst countries for human trafficking in the world. And uh, the number of people in the United States that are classified as living in some form of slavery could be as many as hundreds of thousands of people. And the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is estimating that as many as 300,000 American youth are at risk of sexual exploitation. And a lot of this is driven by the fact that the U.S. is the number one consumer of sex worldwide. And uh, 85% of the victims that are trafficked here in the United States are from here. And this is disproportionately affecting the black community in the United States. So, for example, 40% of victims of human trafficking are African-American, and African-American children comprise 52% of all juvenile prostitution arrests. So what does that have to do with Black Lives Matter? Well, Black Lives Matter has no reference to human trafficking in their mission statement on their website or in their mission statement itself. Um, And some of the policies that they're uh, encouraging and endorsing in in various local chapters would actually probably aggravate trafficking
3: various parts of the country. So they're uh, defund police and uh, and even uh, they've adopted the position of um, some feminists, which is to uh, legalize and and politicians now, you know, this is sort of the last uh, the last uh, shoe to drop here after the legalization of drugs. Now, the legalization of sex work or prostitution. That's something that some Black Lives Matter chapters have advocated. So uh, according to them and according to the argument, legalization of sex work would uh, end human trafficking because you take the uh, profit out of it. Is that your understanding?
9: No, no. And there's quite a few experts on sex work and prostitution who have been adamant in their uh, their, their rejection of this particular Black Lives Matter objective. Like you, ma- like you mentioned, the Washington, D.C. chapter is pushing for this. And this. is I'm a resident of a Virginia suburb, so this is something I've been following pretty closely. There have been a lot of calls and pushes for trying to de- decriminalize sex work in the district for a while. But as one expert noted, the people who are most excited about this movement are pimps and sex buyers. So what does that say about Who's really going to benefit from decriminalizing sex work?
3: You also uh, cite a um, sociologist from uh, University of Central Florida who suggests that defunding police, that's not exactly a, a particularly good prescription for trying to stop human trafficking, including human trafficking of black girls either.
9: Not at all. And that's because to investigate and prosecute human trafficking cases requires quite a bit of specialized training. And that comes from time on the job. Right. So, uh, experts like the one you cited and the other one from Liberty University have said that defunding the police would directly benefit pedophiles and sex traffickers who prey upon innocent Americans. And like I said, that disproportionately affects the African-American community.
3: And um, so so what are the policy recommendations here? I mean, there's uh, you make the point that there is some sentencing disparity between uh, white people and black people who are successfully prosecuted and convicted of sex trafficking minors. So. Is it to equalize the sentencing? Is there a a broader policy agenda that should be followed and that should be debated now in this time where we're focused on black lives mattering?
9: Yeah, like you mentioned, um, there is a disparity. The black people are convicted of uh, sex trafficking minors. On average, they're sentenced to 39 months longer than than white persons. Uh, There's also an initiative called Human Trafficking Affirmative Defense Statute, which only 18 states so far, have have signed into law, and that would require a court to determine if a survivor, the survivor from trafficking, if their criminal act is a direct result of his or her trafficking. Right. So basically, trying to figure out is this person in the sex trade because you know they're a, they're an adult and it's their own decision, or was this something that they were pushed into because they came out of foster care, broken homes, that sort of thing? Because a, a large, very large percentage of trafficking victims are underage, and I think that gets to a broader uh, problem that we would want to encourage BLM and all people who are interested in a lot of african the united states to care about which is the disintegration of black families right and B, which BLM, has, as of right now is sort of also endorsing right they aim as part of the mission statement to disrupt the western prescribed nuclear family structure requirements
3: right because they're marxists uh they're more than just ident they're you know the identitarianism is a way to advance marxism for them at least uh the founders like patrice Cullers and and Alicia Garza, that would seem to be their position. They've made it actually fairly clear. It's also interesting, too, since you brought it up, and this is a much less serious issue, but it is a sign of the Times culturally, much less serious issue than sex trafficking of minors, obviously. But it is noteworthy, and since you're in Virginia, these kids, literally kids, that were scrawling chalk messages of unborn black baby Lives Matter out front of an abortion clinic in D.C. over the weekend, were arrested for defacing public property by D.C. police. And yet uh, you can have uh, all sorts of graffiti. You can have Black Lives Matter murals in front of Trump Tower in New York City where de Blasio says we didn't have time to get a permit for it. It doesn't matter because the message is right. Um, And yet kids in D.C. can't stand in solidarity with the notion of Black Lives Matter, including when they're conceived, without being arrested by police for something that in other big cities, uh, if the message was different, not only there would be no arrest, if there was an arrest, there'd be immediate release, there would be no prosecution.
9: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, this is a devastating double standard um, that ultimately affects, um, again, black Americans, black bodies, as uh, BLM uh, advocates like to say. And um, I cite also in the article, Dr. Carol Swain who uh, is an emeritus professor at Vanderbilt, her Uh, Black Faces, Black Interest book uh, received a lot of renown back in the 1990s. And she's called abortion, modern genocide against uh, black people. You know, the other collaborates with pro-choice activists.
3: Right. Yes. And and this against the backdrop of uh, some actual productive uh, learning of history rather than rewriting of it, like the learning of history of Margaret Sanger, which Planned Parenthood no longer felt it could abide. They had to take Margaret Sanger uh, out of uh, out of their branding uh, by removing her name in Manhattan. Uh, this is an opportunity to understand just exactly uh, upon what values Planned Parenthood was founded while we're debating the values upon which the nation was founded.
9: Yeah, that's right. There's an alternative history about eugenics that should uh, that American children should should know about uh, just as much as they do about uh, yeah slavery and Jim Crow.
3: I, I want to get your reaction to this, too. And it's just, you know, again, your focus on things that are, are material and substantive and— um, wildly disturbing. I mean, the idea that we're talking about slavery in 2020 when everybody's obsessed about uh, with something we could do something about when everybody's obsessed about something we can't do anything about. And then also just the politicization of all things race related, including crime. This uh, piece by an attorney out of uh, California, I believe in the wall street journal uh, about another essentially uh, hate crime hoax. Uh, the 20, the death of 24 year old Robert Fuller, Uh, in Palmdale, California, was uh, bandied about as a lynching by the local KKK. Well, it turned out, after a month of speculation by activists, celebrities, social media users, uh, accusations of lynching and a cover-up, actress Viola Davis got involved, saying Mr. Fuller was murdered. Kim Kardashian West promoted a petition alleging a clear case of intimidation by white supremacists, $237,000 on a GoFundMe page to benefit Mr. Fuller's sister. Well, the family acknowledged that he hung himself. Unfortunately, he killed himself. And there, oh, by the way, there is no local KKK. You know, those sorts of incidents that pop up again and again and are immediately picked up and run with by those who have platforms. And yet something like you're reporting on no interest. Yeah,
9: it is demonstrative, I think, of um, sort of the, the problems with conversations about race um, in the United States. And and mean, the issue of trafficking is one that's very near and dear to my heart as well, because I lived for Thailand in Thailand for three years uh, in Bangkok, which is the sex capital of the world, and I saw this stuff firsthand. And I do not want the United States to turn into another Bangkok, Thailand, where um, you know, where just when I would go out at night with my wife to go to a restaurant, you would see teenage girls sitting out on the corner waiting for you know Western tourists to to show up. Um, and that is not something that I want my children to have to be exposed to in this country.
3: Yeah. Anybody's children. Right. Casey Chalk, columnist for the American Conservative Crisis Magazine and the New Oxford Review. Casey, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much, sir.
0: prof Show.com.
3: welcome back to the show uh transitioning from our conversation with casey chalk about uh slavery in the 2020 century context uh, actually uh walter russell mead uh sort of um Flies in formation with that. It's more expansive is his review of the impact of the pandemic on life in the West going forward. Uh, he writes, COVID-19 is a less is less a transient random disturbance after which the world will return to stability than it is a dress rehearsal for challenges to come. Uh, some of those uh, uh, criminal enterprises, the subjugation of people, particularly young women that we were talking about with Casey Chalk would be included But again, it's bigger than that, according to Walter Russell Mead. The pandemic, which is mild as the great plagues of history go, demonstrates the complexity of this global civilization has become a source of new vulnerabilities. And with the illegitimacy of many institutions resting on their ability to solve problems quickly and effectively, COVID-19 challenges political leaders and institutions in ways they cannot easily manage. As we have seen, the world needs to get used to that feeling. The pandemic's legacy will be crisis and chaos and the trajectory of human civilization has shifted in ways that will test political leaders and economic policymakers more severely than anything since World War II. It's partly because the return of the great power competition introduced new risks and complications. More fundamentally, it's because the information revolution is beginning to disrupt the world as profoundly as did the industrial revolution. He uh, goes on one more aspect of, Reed's argument picking up on the information technology piece, the digital revolution in part, a bright spot in the pandemic, allowing many businesses and institutions to continue functioning, even as employees stay home, but the same transformation also driving many of the destabilizing forces, declines in stable manufacturing jobs, whole regions hollowed by, out by economic change. We talk about that a little bit yesterday with Chris Arnotti, the photojournalist, the collapse of professional journalism clearly, The rise of social media, the implosion of traditional retail and looming job threats as self-driving cars and other new technological innovations move into the marketplace. Institutions that were undergoing transition, as has been argued almost to the point of it becoming a cliche, um, just moving much more quickly in a direction they were already already headed. Well, we've uh, spoken a good bit about K through 12 education. Uh, What about college education? We've talked a little bit about it in the context of some of the first movers, uh, Princeton, to uh, bring the kids back to campus only so they could sit in their dorms and take classes. And many colleges doing a a hybrid as our high schools of two days on and three days off or three and two or freshmen and juniors come back in the fall and sophomores and seniors in the spring and so on and so forth. There's all sorts of Changes being made other than with respect to the cost, although I think Princeton did provide a 10 percent reduction in tuition because of the nature of the e-learning that will happen, even though it's on campus Uh, against that backdrop. You know, part of this is, well, how does the market respond to, as Walter Russell Mead argues, the challenges that the leaders of these important civic and cultural institutions are presented with ways they cannot easily manage competing values or their ideology running into the practicality and what the market is willing to bear. Well, I, I, you know, I, I go back to this column that I reference almost on a weekly basis, this future view column that the wall street journal posts with responses on a particular topic from college students. So this one is as to the readiness of, colleges for the fall semester, which is upon us. Uh, some, some, you know, the, the sort of hypocrisy and arbitrariness of so much of the decisions that are being made is not lost on many of these young people. And oh, by the way, that uh, speaks to the legitimacy of the institution, at least as it's currently formed, doesn't it? And the vulnerability it will have to pushes for change. So why don't we start with Princeton? Princeton. Uh, alone together on campus, Bennett Thompson, who's a history major at Princeton. Princeton's reopening plan outlaws are altered tremendously. Just about every element of undergrad student life. The vast majority of coursework is online. Varsity and club athletic competition scrapped. All student organization facilities closed. Discouraging student clubs from meeting in person. Half the undergrad population being kept off campus. And the university has instructed those who will return to pack lightly and refrain from bringing items like furniture or TVs for their rooms. Why? I mean, again, we know that transmission doesn't really occur on surfaces, but okay. It's a mystery to me why Princeton would go through the trouble of bringing back undergrads, especially given New Jersey's strict reopening laws, if no per- no in-person instruction is to take place. Students are expected to take classes on laptops. Many will live in single rooms, all expected to abstain from hosting in-person gatherings on campus. Princeton has assured parents it will facilitate virtual discussions among new students so that they can talk about their isolation. <laughs> let's uh, alone together on campus where we could talk about our isolation. Uh, I mean, it's almost something like from a, you know, a SART novel. No doubt a virtual pity party will make the new students feel right at home, Thompson says sarcastically. Perhaps the university is motivated to bring students back for financial reasons. Ding, ding, ding. But it seems more likely the administration is struggling to adjust to New Jersey's web of higher education reopening guidelines. Regardless, the plan in its current state is sure to win Princeton a pyrrhic victory against COVID-19 and only a pyrrhic victory. Hmm. That's a good riff. The tuition time bomb response from Jack McDonald, who's an international studies major at Boston College. I'm okay with logging my temperature daily. I'm fine getting tested at random. I'll happily cover my face anytime I'm not in my bedroom, distance from any form of social gathering, even sign liability waivers if it means I can spend one day of senior year on campus, in the classroom. I'm not okay, however, with Boston College's tuition hike. While lost revenue from a semester online certainly imposes a burden on the school, is it fair to increase the cost again despite a global pandemic and mass unemployment? When will we hit the tuition ceiling? Boy, isn't that a question on the minds of every parent or prospective college parent. Tuition this year will cost 59 grand. The overall cost of attendance at Boston College now more than $75,000 a year. Wow. Frankly, I'm less concerned about hand sanitizer stations than the thousands of dollars of unexpected debt my peers will have to take on to compensate for lost football revenue. Zing. Tuition inflation is one of the biggest problems facing young adults. What's the university's plan for that? Well, I mean, it's, this is you know really cuts to the heart of what Walter Russell Mead is arguing is going to happen. and And this specifically from Mr. McDonald cuts to the heart of, A problem higher ed is going to have to grapple with uh, the return on investment, the price point for what you're getting now. Now it's not just return on investment. It's it's a bait and switch. I was paying fifty nine or seventy five grand all in for this experience. And now I'm being given not the A experience I was paid I paid for. I'm getting the B or C experience and still being charged the same. That doesn't fly. None of it flies and none of it's going to fly in its current form for uh, much longer. I I would suggest you could start to see radical changes beginning with the closure of name universities in the next school year or two. It won't happen all at once. Uh, It will, you know, be slowly then suddenly, but uh, it's going to increase in pace because you just have a marketplace that won't tolerate the arbitrariness of, uh, of the Academy at the price point at which they're charging for their arbitrariness. This is Dan Proft.
0: You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. President Trump's uh, COVID briefing uh, yesterday evening, he um, provided some data. I like these uh, sort of refurbished versions of the COVID briefing where it's just Trump. It's prepared remarks. It's data intensive, trying to provide some context that the media will not with respect to COVID. It's much more productive and frankly, presidential Uh, on cases uh, nationwide. They're declining. You wouldn't know it, but they are. Here's President Trump explaining.
5: Cases are declining in 70% of the jurisdictions compared to 36% last Monday. That's a big, big number. 11 out of 13 states with the positive rate above 10% have seen a decline in daily cases since mid-July. In other states, the data suggests that the need for continuing Vigilance always is strong, even though the numbers are getting very good. States that have a test positivity rate between 5 and 10%, and in the states with the lowest positivity rates, we also see slight increases in daily cases, and a couple of them. We must ensure that these states do not become new flare-ups, so we're watching them very, very closely.
3: And on fatalities, again, the data. Fatalities
5: nationwide are at roughly half the level of the April peak, one is too much, one death, because this should have never happened to us. It should have been stopped very easily by China in Wuhan. Thanks to our major advances in treatment, we've seen vast improvements in recovery rates across all age groups compared to April. Mortality rates are 85% lower among individuals aged 18 to 69.
3: Would you think that uh, the fatality rate is half of what it was at the peak? in april based on the news coverage you get based on the you know i want to teach but i want to live to sort of rhetoric you're getting from teachers unions around the country for example amplified by the press corps i mean that's the data it is not in controversy again 63 percent of counties in the united states have fewer than five COVID deaths nearly two-thirds of counties in this country Uh, Every place is not New York. And in point of fact, as we know, New York, New Jersey and Massachusetts, 10 percent of the population, nearly half of all the deaths. It's concentrated. Um, This is not to be flippant about those deaths. It's not to be flippant about the virus. It's not to be unserious about it. It's to provide context. So the response is proportional, because I would argue the response has not been proportional. And for those advocating lockdowns, well, you can do what you want at the state level, but you're not going to get air cover from Trump.
5: An extended lockdown would fail to target resources at the highest risk populations while inflicting massive economic pain, long lasting damage on society and public health as a whole. So there won't be lockdowns, but we watch specific areas. We're very careful. For
3: more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Alex Berezao again. He is the vice president of scientific communications at the American Council on Science and Health, a Ph.D. microbiologist, as well as a columnist for USA Today. Alex, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Um, So why don't we begin with uh, schools, since that's top of mind for, I don't know, 50 million families around the country? And again, I'll just ask you the question we've asked all the medical experts that we have on. Is there any sense? Is there any argument against precautions included kids being in the classroom to learn in three weeks?
1: I think that it's a tough argument to keep schools closed because of the damage that we're inflicting on kids, because kids that are five six seven eight years old they need contact with their kids this is what they really need for their own social development their own educational development their own mental development and i think we have to look at that there was this piece in esquire magazine that this this author said that you know he was essentially uh we have to make life or death decisions about sending our kids back to school and and it's just it's such a silly thing to say this is real i i looked up these statistics So far in the 5 to 14 age demographic, so that is basically kindergarten to 8th grade, there have been 19 COVID deaths among kids. Now, among that same age demographic, a couple of years ago, 2018, there were over almost 300 homicides. So you're roughly about 15 times likelier, if you're a kid 5 to 14 years old, to be murdered than to die of COVID. And so... You know, you have to put these things into perspective. And, no, I I very strongly advocate going back to school with precautions. If there are teachers who are afraid, maybe we can make some sort of accommodations for them in some way. Um, You know, they teach from home or something. I don't know. But school needs to needs to happen.
3: When we come back with Alex Berzow, I want to talk about uh, lockdowns and the lockdown whack-a-mole that uh, many governors and mayors are pursuing as a policy depending on case increases rather than hospitalizations or deaths. More with microbiologist in USA Today columnist Alex Berizville right after.
0: Yeah. good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
3: We're back with Alex Barazal, USA Today columnist and microbiologist. We're uh, talking all things COVID-19. And Alex, I want to get your take on um, sort of the larger policy issue with respect to COVID-19 response. What is your perspective on this uh, whack-a-mole, as I mentioned before, this lockdown whack-a-mole that governors and mayors around the country are playing? There's a growing uh, body of evidence that suggests lockdowns actually exacerbate the spread because most of the transmission occurs in households.
1: Well, I don't know about that. I, you know, I, I'm still here in Europe. I'm actually coming home home next week back to seattle and i've been in poland for the for the past six months so so i'm looking at these statistics so in germany yesterday august 4th there were eight deaths from COVID 19 same day in the united states there were 1265 so we we, the united states didn't get it under control uh you know trump's trump's statistics to me sound a little bit like you know polishing a turd. Right. I mean, it's 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 not great news, but he's going to try to spin it to be good news. Uh, you know, it, compared to Europe, the United States is an absolute mess. And so. And, 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 the and, theory-
3: just, and just I just want to hold you there because I want to include this and Tony Fauci, uh, because this is the, the Dems line. Why didn't mm-hmm. we control the virus the way that Europe did as if they did, did it so unequivocally well? Uh, Tony Fauci's explanation is, well, they shut down their economies like 90%. We only shut down our economy like 50%. That was essentially his explanation. But there's a couple of things there. One is shutting down our economy more than it was shut down. Um, was the damage severe enough for the, the level of shutdown that we did inflict on ourselves? Number two yeah, there's something different about America than those other countries that are being that America is being compared to. Our federalist system, decentralized government, that's something we used to cherish. And now we're supposed to scrap our entire system and go to some command control system like a socialist European country to combat a virus. When we've never done this before and we've had viruses that have taken out – uh, hundreds of thousands of people in this country before, particularly if you prorated per capita, like comparing uh, what happened in 57 or what happened in 68 to what's happening now.
1: Yeah, there's there's definitely some, some major differences between European countries and the United States. Uh, Germany does have a federal system like like the United States does, but they were much more coordinated um, under Angela Merkel. Uh, but, but the other European countries definitely are more, Statist, right? The, the the government can say you're going to do this, and then people do it, and that doesn't that that's never been the case in the United States, right? So you have to tailor policies that make sense to your uh, th- that that makes sense culturally, right? Uh, and I actually wrote an article about that as well. That you know there are certain you know, the running of the bulls, right, in Spain, like that's got to be like one of the world's dumbest traditions, right? Let a bunch of bulls out and they'll run over people. Okay, they're never going to stop doing that, right? <laughs> right? Because they like it and it's their culture. And so, uh, you know, when we, a, a total lockdown telling Americans you can't go anywhere and you can't do anything, it's just, it was never going to be a good policy to begin with because it's just not, it would not have worked in America. So um, I I do agree to to that extent that it was a policy not fit for the American culture.
3: Well, and there's also this. I mean, just going back to what I said at the outset, again, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, 10 percent of the population, nearly half the deaths, more than half the deaths, as uh, President Trump mentioned, in nursing homes. So, you know, the idea that this was done so badly. Well, if it was done so badly, I mean, look at the resources at the federal level that were scrambled for New York and New Jersey in particular. And California, too. But New York and New Jersey in particular, where it did spiral out of control. And, and so, I'm so I'm sorry. I'm w- sorry. W- that's that's the entirety of the country's fault. Uh, what Andrew Cuomo and some governors decided to do in terms of reintroducing infected patients into nursing homes. I don't think so. And I don't think that every uh, Hamlet and and in county and state has handled this badly. And it's a, it's a little bit um, annoying, frankly, that uh, everybody has to be lumped in with the aggregate stats that are being driven by a handful of states.
1: I agree with that. And, 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 uh, and the corollary to that is uh, that large policies don't make sense when applied, you know, uh, equally across the whole country. It does not make sense to apply the same policy in New York City as it does to, you know, Peoria. Uh, right. It, it simply doesn't make any sense. And so, um, I do think that the, the United States cared in that regard. In Washington State, uh, they were put putting, you know, small towns under the same sort of restrictions that Seattle was under, and it absolutely did not make any sense. Uh,
3: before we let you go, I wanted to get uh, uh, to this this other piece that you wrote because you've tackled another area of science that's important. Uh, We had uh, Michael Schellenberger on the program to talk about his new book, Apocalypse Never, and to talk about this remarkable mea culpa that he issued for uh, what he termed were his contributions to climate change alarmism over the decades as somebody who's got a 30-year record of being an environmental activist. And uh, he is now being pilloried, of course, by the apocalyptic uh, climate change crowd, including the scientific community. Uh, and he's even being called, uh, remarkably, a white supremacist because he won't abide their AOC-like predictions about the world's end.
1: It's crazy. There, there's this theory known as critical race theory, and uh, basically it, it's it's a derivative of Marxism. So under, under Marxism, the Marxist thought is that there's this hierarchy of oppression with rich people at the top, the elites, and everybody else at the bottom, and uh, they're being oppressed by the people at the top. This is why Marxists always favor revolution, because they say the whole system's broken, has to be overthrown. Well, that's now been replaced by race, and the people at the top now are white males, and everybody else is at the bottom. And therefore, if you support anything in our society, if you support the status quo in any way, you are, by definition, supporting white supremacy you're probably a white supremacist yourself that is what uh mike schoenberger was called because he thinks climate change is not uh, something we need to be panicking over it's simply a a, uh, a tackleable problem it's a problem we can fix and therefore uh he is supporting the current status quo he's not supporting revolution and turning over everything therefore he's white supremacist that it sounds nuts but this and it is nuts but this theory is gaining traction on academic campuses all across the country.
3: Oh, yeah. Alex Barraza, Vice President of Scientific Communications at the American Council on Science and Health, Ph.D. microbiologist and columnist for USA Today. Alex, thanks for joining us again. Safe travels back to Washington, and then safe living in Seattle.
1: <laughs> yeah,
3: no kidding.
0: No yeah. kidding, yeah. Thanks, Alex. My pleasure, guys. On the
3: wings of love, up and above the top.
0: you'll know this is the Dan Prof show
3: welcome back to the show Uh, more uh, Joe Biden to close out uh, today's installment Joe Biden fails a cognitive test while denying the need to take one you'll get it in a second In an interview, a Zoom interview, of course, he's in his basement with a number of individuals. But the interviewer is CBS National Correspondent Errol Barnett. Uh, He asks about Joe Biden taking a cognitive test. And listen to what Joe Biden says. Uh, Keep in mind, Errol Barnett is a black man. And no, he didn't uh, reprise his uh, Charlemagne the God interview where if you don't vote for Joe Biden, you ain't black. But uh, something also a little bit tone deaf he did offer. Mr. Vice President, your opponent in this election, President Trump, has made your mental state a campaign topic. And when asked in June if you had been
9: tested um, for cognitive decline, you've responded that you're constantly
5: tested in, in, F- in effect because you're in situations like this on the campaign trail. But please
7: clarify specifically, have you taken a cognitive no, test? No, I haven't taken a test. Why the hell would I take a test? Come on, man. That's like saying you, before you got in this program, if you take a test where you're taking cocaine or not. What do you think, huh? Are, are you a junkie? What do you say to President <laughs> Trump who brags about his test and makes your mental state an issue for voters? Well, if he can't figure out the difference between an elephant and a lion, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Did you watch that? Look, come on, what? man. I, I, I know you're trying to goad me, but I mean – I'm so forward-looking to have an opportunity to sit with the president or stand with the president in debates. There's going to be plenty of time. And by the way, as I joke with him, you know, it, I, I shouldn't say it. I'm going to say something I don't. I, I probably shouldn't say. Anyway, I am. Uh, I am very willing to let the American public judge my physical, and mental, fil- my physical as well as my mental fil- fitness. And, uh, Uh to, uh, you know, to make a judgment about who I am.
3: Uh, okay.
7: Uh, Scranton
3: Joe. Uh, so he goes right to, uh, did should I ask you if you've taken a cocaine test before the interview? Are you a junkie? Yes. That of a black man. Why does he go right to cocaine? Is it because the only other black guy he knows was an admitted cocaine user? That would be Barack Obama. I don't know about corn pop because I don't know if he's real. Uh, okay, Joe, and it just gets weirder, uh, by the day, uh, the announcement, uh, this morning that Democrats dialing back plans for their socialist confab in Milwaukee, not even Joe Biden is going to travel to Milwaukee for it. So I know he's, uh, looking forward to the debates and I know per our, uh, Joe Biden's interview with Dana Perino, we played uh, earlier in the show that Joe Biden is looking for the debates for, for her husband, Joe, and they're all committed to it. They won't even go to their own convention. Can't even get them out of the basement to do that. And yet, Wisconsin officials still expected to give speeches from Milwaukee's downtown convention center. Uh, local officials giving speeches in an empty hall on behalf of a nominee who's not there. Uh, it just gets more and more bizarre. And we'll cover all that uh, is bizarre that transpires between now and tomorrow. Well, the Dan Prof Show. Thanks for joining us on this installment. Please do so again tomorrow.
0: From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show.
5: You are fake news.